before cell phones, it wouldn't be unusual for someone to go up to a person and say, excuse me, sir, do you have the time? And the fellow or woman, I guess, would be wearing a watch, and he'd say, yes, I do have the time. Well, you would only ask that question if you weren't wearing a watch. Probably you were in an unfamiliar place and probably late for some reason. The problem of not knowing clock time, however, is nothing compared to not knowing God's times of working in the world. This greater problem actually is frequently addressed in Scripture, and Scripture in that sense is like a clock. It tells us what time it is. Here's one vivid example of people misjudging time. I've preached on this passage before. It's one of my favorites. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says, My soul is very sorrowful, he says it to Peter, James, and John, even to the point of death, remain here and keep watch with me. So Jesus goes and he prays to the Father and he comes back to the disciples and what does he find? They're sleeping. And he says to Peter, it's always Peter, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. See, that's our problem. Our internal clocks, and I'm told that well, we have them, but we don't really know what they are. So our internal clocks are constantly either too fast or too slow. We're having to reset them on a regular basis. And the disciples lost track of time. And it isn't just that they fell asleep. They didn't realize the importance of the moment that was on them. Jesus was praying right before he was going to be arrested. Now, the fact that Peter, James, and John misjudged the importance of that moment isn't surprising. I mean, if you're even basically familiar with the New Testament, every one of the 12 disciples regularly did face plants when it came to figuring out what Jesus was up to and what he was trying to say. They got it wrong on a regular basis. In fact, you can read the Gospels and expect that. And the only people that seem to get it right are the least expected people, like the sinners and the tax collectors, and the prostitutes. So we're like the disciples. Not only do we misspend our time from day to day, we lose track, in a biblical sense, of the importance of the hour, of who we are, and what we're called to do. What does it take to keep track of what God is doing in your life? How do you make sure your internal clock, spiritually speaking, is always on time? How do you keep from falling asleep in the garden, so to speak? What kind of things tempt you to live your life for yourself and not for God? These are all time questions to my thinking, and they are addressed in different ways in our passage this morning in 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter mentions time a couple of times, so as I read it, I want you to pay attention to when he mentions the word time. And then I want you to think about when he mentions the word time, how it might be calling you to ask this question, what time is it? And that's the title of my sermon, and I'm going to try to answer it in three ways from our passage. So we're asking, what time is it from a biblical standpoint? And I think Peter gives three answers that I want to leave you with 
this morning. My hope is that as a Christian, by getting Peter's answers to these questions, you will live more faithfully for him, no matter how old you are or what circumstances you find yourself in. I'm also hoping that if you're not a Christian yet, that Peter's answers will give you a glimpse of the profound beauty of what it means to live life for God, to truly live for him. So let's begin by reading God's word together in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. This is God's eternal word. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time is past, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you not, do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that your word does help us to keep track of time. Not time as we understand it, whether it's waiting for the end of school or for summer vacation to begin, or perhaps waiting for promotion or for someone we're in a relationship with to text us back or call us back or waiting for some crisis to end. Lord, we want to know time as you measure it. And we want to know what time it is. So teach us from your word. Help us and guide us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first answer to the question, what time is it? Peter tells us, it is time to arm yourselves. That is in verse 1 of our text. Take a look. It says, Since therefore Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. I'm calling this a time for arming. Now, I'm not talking about human arms, although they could be used as weapons. I'm talking about a weapon specifically. To arm yourself means to pick up a weapon. In the ancient world, it might have been a sword of some kind or a spear. I mean, David used a weapon. What was David's weapon? A slingshot, right? A sling with a stone. It's time to arm yourself. But it wouldn't just be offensive weaponry. Today we might say a handgun or a knife or some sort of way to defend yourself. And you could use your hands to do that. We would also include armament. For example, a shield or a helmet. Uh, maybe in modern terms, a, a Kevlar vest with plates in it. Something that could deflect a bullet or a blow of some kind. This is what arms are. And Peter says we are to arm ourselves. It's actually a word that's used frequently in military contexts. So he's inviting us to enter into the notion, and I mentioned this briefly last week, of warfare. 
or battle. So it's a, by saying it's a time to arm ourselves or to bear arms, we're saying that it is a battle time and there is a battle that is waging. Now, as you look out the window, I don't see any bullets flying or cars blowing up, thankfully. I mean, that isn't so far-fetched, I suppose, given what we read in the headlines all too frequently. We've talked about safety plans for us as a church, which involve defending ourselves, God forbid, in a tragic accident. But barring those sort of, if I may say, extreme examples, looking out the window, it's a peaceful day. It does not look like there's a battle raging. Now, there is a battle raging like in Ukraine, but right here, right now, it's hard to remember that you're in a battle. Everywhere you go, everyone is telling you all is well, all is at peace. But when you arm yourself, you're not listening to those messages. If you have a handgun and you're armed, the safety latch is off. Am I right? You're armed. This isn't theoretical at this point. Safety latches on, it's, I mean, it's theoretical. But when the safety latch is off, it's time for business, and you better be ready. I've learned to fire a handgun on, a, on gun ranges with my dad over the years, and I've done lots of target practice. I'm not very good, but uh, he's taught me the, the rules of the road, and you know, what, how to act on a gun range, and, and there's a very important set of behaviors that anyone who handles a gun needs to practice. But when the target range and a silhouette is replaced with another person, that's business. And it's not messing around. And it's hard to remember, using this graphic example, that we are in a battle which doesn't involve paper targets when it comes to the Christian life. It's real. People are dying. Perhaps even one of you this morning, or many of you, are suffering and dying. If you had a wound, you might say you're bleeding out. It had a femoral artery, and the blood is pooling on the floor as we speak. Even though I don't see any actual blood coming out, thankfully, being aligned to the timing of God requires thinking in terms of battle. That's what Peter says. Christ has suffered in the flesh. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So arming is not using guns, if I may be so specific, but it's a way of thinking, isn't it? Verse 1. There's a mindset involved in taking the safety latch off, uh, pulling the pin on the grenade, in putting on a vest or taking up a shield or a sword in the ancient world. It's a way of thinking that is called for. The not playing games, we're not playing around, we're playing for keeps. That's a way of thinking. By the way, this is hard for a child to grasp. It's hard for a young person to realize that we are in a life and death contest in which there are winners and losers. And we need to arm ourselves with this way of thinking. Particularly when you're around your friends who 
look at you kind of weird for having Christian faith or acting like Sunday's important or reading your Bible or raising your hand in class and saying that the particular secular atheist line that's being spouted off by the teacher is crazy or at least there's another perspective. Some of you may be in Christian families that have non-Christian habits and children find it difficult at times to align the misbehavior of their parents and the claims of their parents. The parents say that they're Christians, but then they don't act like it. So the parents are saying there's a spiritual battle going on and the children can't see it because the parent, the father or the mother, seems to be just living just like everyone else. The mindset has to do with the content of your mind, your actual thoughts. But it's more than that. It's, uh, this is a, an unusual word, axiom, A-X-I-O-M. It's a cool word. It's got an X in it, so that's cool. An axiom is a, is a framework. So something that's axiomatic is something that is typical. So you're to arm yourself with an axiomatic mindset, a framework, a, a, a way of thinking about the world. Here's a few key points, a few axioms that you need to keep in mind. God is real. Jesus lived, died, and rose again for you. You are called to live for him and no one else. There are some axioms there that are like weaponry or arms or shields or swords that you need to take up on a regular basis. Reminding yourself in reading the scriptures and in having conversations with fellow Christians. Colossians 2.18, the Apostle Paul describes a human way of thinking. That's not what you're to arm yourself with here. It's since Christ suffered in, your, suffered in the flesh, you're to arm yourself with Christ's way of thinking. Not the human way of thinking in Colossians 2.18. Colossians 1.21, same thing. Hostile with your thinking by doing evil deeds. So I know how you're thinking in some ways by the way that you're behaving. Our thoughts lead to feelings, which lead to actions. Speaking of an axiom, thoughts, feelings, actions. We can tell what you're thinking in some ways by the way that you're living. What is the mind of Christ? What is this weapon that you're supposed to arm yourself with? Well, what do you know about Jesus? He lived a perfect life. He was born of a virgin which is to say he's the fountain of a whole new race of human beings. He's the start of a new way of being human. That's what we know about Jesus. That's the Christmas story. And then what did he do? He grew as a child and then as a teenager and then as an adult. And never once did he sin, always obeying his Father's will. We know this about Jesus. He always set aside his will as to his human nature for the Lord's will, for God's will. And then, not only did he do that for himself, but he did something for you and me too. Christ's way of thinking not only sought to be obedient for himself, which he did, but he was obedient for you and for me. This is called his substitutionary 
atonement. He was obedient in my place as my substitute. If you've had a substitute teacher, usually the sub is not as good as the, as the main teacher. Sometimes the sub is as good, but often that's not the case. Well, in this case, the substitute is way better than you and I could ever do. He's the perfect Savior. And so when I learned that what Christ did was not only obey for himself, but he, he obeyed for me, and he suffered in my place on the cross. He died on the cross for my sins. In fact, turn back to 1 Peter 3.18 to be reminded of this. Last Sunday we saw this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us back to God. Well, chapter 4 just continues the same way of, of uh, thinking when he says, since Christ suffered in this way, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. And then we saw the importance of baptism last week and how baptism unites us to Christ, associates us with Christ, and calls forth faith for a child. Baptism becomes a lifelong sermon that evokes faith in that child's life. For an adult who's baptized, as a new believer, baptism and faith remind you that you are called to arm yourself with this way of thinking. I am to be related to Christ. I am to be using Christ as my guide and my guard. But this is something you have to choose. Peter says, arm yourselves. So if you're a child and you've been baptized, you need to arm yourself with the promises that have been given to you as an infant, which you didn't realize was happening to you at the time. You're now 10, 12, 15, 20 years old. It's time to arm yourself. If you're an adult and you remember your baptism, as I do, I need to arm myself with all that it means. I said last week I wanted you to, to think about and to celebrate your baptisms. This is why. Because what happens in this sacramental mystery is that you receive spiritual tools in which you may fight the enemy of your souls because we are in a battle. Now we live in a society that undermines and distorts your perception of time. It is not a time of battle, it is a time of peace. And some pastors do this too, by the way. They promise you prosperity and blessing and all is well. They hardly ever mention sin. It's a dirty word. But that's not helping you to arm yourself for battle. You need to choose a church where the pastor and the women and the men who are in leadership in the church are, are honest with you about the nature of the conflict. Because you know yourself well enough to know you really don't want to hear that. And if it were just a matter of hearing something that you wanted to hear, then why are we here? You need to be equipped, armed, that's what time it is. I love this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, talking about the nature of our warfare. The weapons of our warfare, Paul says, are not carnal, but mighty through God for the tearing down of strongholds and everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We live in a world where people are erecting monuments of atheism and selfishness. And some of them are visible and some of them are just ideological or theoretical. 
and you are called at every moment of the day to evaluate what's going on around you in terms of Christ and the mind of Christ. That's what time it is. It's time to arm yourselves. Second answer to this question, what time is it from our text? And it relates to the first. Um, This is a feel-good sermon, by the way. It's not only a time for arming, but it's a time for suffering. Look at verses 1 and 2. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Our passage links to the previous section with the word therefore. It really, Peter wants you to recognize that verses 19 through 22 are something of a parenthesis, and he's continuing the idea that he started in verse 18, talking about the sufferings of Christ. And he is calling you to imitate Jesus, Just as Jesus suffered, you need to be prepared to suffer. I think this is kind of Peter's way of saying what Jesus told him. Peter, if anyone would follow me, he must take up his cross and follow after me, denying himself. That's hard. That's what suffering means. But it's not ordinary suffering. You know, lots of religions in the world, Islam, has a doctrine of suffering. Hinduism has a doctrine of suffering. There's even a a way to understand suffering in secularism. In fact, our Monday School of Discipleship this spring has dived deep into this question of how different world religions and philosophies approach suffering. What's unique about the Christian perspective of suffering, there's several unique features. One of them is, is that you don't suffer alone. In the Christian faith, Jesus suffers for you and with you. God in the flesh has suffered. And so in this sense, the example of Christ or imitating Christ is catalyzed by the fact that Christ suffered first for you. You're not called to simply be like Christ. You are united to Christ and enabled to be like Christ. So the time for suffering means Christ's example flows from Christ's own obedience. So Christ's suffering in the flesh has given a new pathway for you, a new way for you to think about life, one in which you go beyond this life when time as we know it ceases. And so the things that you're experiencing now, you know, are temporary because Jesus has died and entered eternity And since you're united with him, he's promised to bring you to where he is. That means there's a period or an end to your suffering. And the good things that you taste and see and experience in this life, there'll be a time when those things go on unendingly and in a beautiful way that's that's beyond your imagination. But Christ's suffering in the flesh also helps you to understand the hardships of this life with a different sense of time. What do I mean by that? When you suffer, you recognize that God is doing something in you. 
that you can be thankful for, as hard as it may be at the time. Take a look at the text again. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. You see, suffering here, Peter's saying, is productive. It, it, it's fruitful. If you see, uh, we're going to see that uh, we picked some berries. We, meaning my family, picked some berries. I got to enjoy the berries, but the strawberries are in the field. The peaches will be on the trees soon. Cherries, blueberries. Fruitful means that there's all the work of all those branches and leaves pushing out is going to result in something tasty and enjoyable and lovely. Suffering is like that for the Christian. It's fruitful. It produces something beauty. There's a phrase, beauty from ashes, that, that evokes this, that echoes some of the sufferings that we see in the characters of the Bible. Specifically, what does this mean, though, the one who has suffered has ceased from sin? Well, two things. It means that sin as a dominant power or a reigning power in your life is no more. It means that if you are outside of Christ, if you are not baptized, if you're not a believer, then sin is your master. Even when you do good things, you're doing them for the wrong reason. That's what that means. So having ceased from sin, what it means is when you're armed with the mind of Christ, you have a new Lord. Jesus is your Lord. But it also means, by the way, that, that sometimes is called definitive sanctification. It also means, though, that some sins in your life, as you progress in your sanctification, will have less and less control over you. That you'll see progress in certain areas of your life, whether it's in sexual temptation or your emotional temptations or in other temptations that you may have in breaking the Ten Commandments due to the cleansing, sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit working in, through, in your sufferings. This is called progressive sanctification. So definitive sanctification is the breach, the once and for all break from sin as Lord in your life. You are now positionally free from sin. But we still experience sin on a daily basis. And so this verse speaks to both of those dynamics. Not only the full break from sin when you put your faith in Christ for the first time and are armed with the mind of Christ, but then the gradual outworking of your salvation as you grow in faith. So as a young man, you should expect that the same struggles you have at age 15 or 20 or 25, those will wane in your old age. Now, unfortunately, this does not mean that you will reach a point in your life where you are done with sin altogether. The old sins that you struggled with and you're now getting victory over find themselves replaced by new struggles, the struggles of middle age or of old age. So being ceasing from sin doesn't mean that there'll ever be a time in this life where you'll be free from it. It is, however, a warning. It is a warning that if you're pursuing a life of ease, it could actually increase your vulnerability to sin and temptation. So you need to embrace your life as a Christian soldier by embracing the reality that the battle that we're in involves suffering. Take a look in particular, and I'm only going to be brief on verses 3 and 4, at the kinds of sins that Paul is encouraging you to no longer participate in. 
living in sensuality, which means a life of unrestrained immorality, especially sexual sin, but it can refer to other sins as well. Passions, the word passions, do speci- does speak specifically to the notion of lust. Drunkenness, the King James uses excess of wine here, describes drinking parties in the ancient world that could have gone on all night or, in some cases, for many days. Orgy was not originally a negative word. Originally, it was used to describe a a gathering around a meal with a large group of people in celebration of something. But in the ancient world, those gatherings around meals would often involve consumption of intoxicating substances of various kinds, and that would often lead to sexual sin on a grand scale. Drinking parties, I've already mentioned, so Peter is repeating himself a little bit. And then this phrase, lawless idolatry, which is a warning to Christians to not prostrate themselves before pagan statues, even if it meant that they would experience social repercussions. That's suffering. Because if everyone in the community are doing these things, and it's part of a national identity, which it was in ancient Rome, then for you to refrain from doing these certain behaviors and activities would mean that you would suffer in many ways. So you need to be prepared in your battle against sin to take hits from your friends and from the people that have influence in society. Because you're going to wind up standing out as a strange and unusual person. And the text tells us that, doesn't it? It says, With respect to this, they are surprised, verse 4, when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. This word surprise is worth underlining. It actually means you look like an alien to them. You look like you're from a different planet. What planet are you from? Should be something that your friends tell you, your non-Christian friends. Why are you so weird? You're always making things difficult. Why can't you just go with the flow? These are what it means to surprise your friends, your non-Christian friends. I want to challenge you. A, do you have non-Christian friends? Because Peter is explicit that your life is to be lived in the presence of unbelievers. And there's a saying, the longer, when you first put your faith in Christ, we just say as an adult, if you're a new believer, in that moment, you have the most non-Christian friends that you will have. But church, this is what happens over the weeks and months and years that follow. You begin to separate yourself from these unholy influences because you recognize that I used to live that way and being around these people is a bad influence on me and I get easily drawn in and not knowing what time it is, which is exactly what I've been saying. But over time, in trying to protect yourself from these unholy influences, you wind up having no one around you who could actually be surprised at the way that you're living. And so there's a balance here where, yes, you need, you need to separate yourself from some friends and from some activities of some friends, but you're called to live out your life in the presence of non-Christians. That's one reason you're still alive, is that God is at work in the world and he's using you as a witness to shine the light and the love of Christ to everyone you meet. If you go an entire day without having a meaningful conversation with a non-Christian, I challenge you as to whether you're living a faithful Christian life. 
People need to be surprised by your behavior. They need to be able to ask you, just curious, why did you do that? And you have the challenge of figuring out a way to be surprising in your lifestyle without being overly annoying. <laughs> I'm not sure how to do it. I tend to be overly annoying. <laughs> and then I'm the opposite. I just fit right in. It's a time for arming. It's a time for suffering. And finally, and I'll be brief on this point, it's a time for hope. Hope can be seen in our text in several places. Look at verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Well, that's reason to hope. Sin is the most disgusting, depressing, and deflating thing you can do to yourself. And being enslaved to sin is the worst and if you're still thinking about putting your faith in Christ or following him, let me invite you to do so. Because Jesus said, if you put your faith in me, you will be free from sin. You will be amazed at the change that the Holy Spirit works in the heart of a believer. You will be amazed. But for those of you who are Christians, you, you can have hope. Because this addictive compulsive behavior that you feel like you're a slave to, in Christ, you are free. Now, in my experience, and I have a lot of experience with sin, freedom from sin doesn't happen alone. It doesn't happen alone. Usually you need someone else or a group of people to help you get free, particularly from certain sins. Am I right? I know that's what many of you have experienced. And it doesn't happen in secret, which is related. You can't just talk in general with your friends or your buddies about the sins that you're struggling with. You need to confess it. And my favorite promise here, and this is encouragement for both the men and the women, is if you walk in the light, as he is in the light, you will have fellowship with one another. And if you're in a group of Christians and you're holding on to secret sin, you feel like an outsider. And you are in a way. Your fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ is, has been breached by your secret sin. There's a lot of shame attached to certain sins. And I am not going to say that we as a church handle this very well. We don't. We try. We're sincere. But we're sort of ham-fisted when someone confesses sin and we, we're like, okay, this is our moment. We're going to be that warm and accepting body of Christ that, that understands sin, but we're also going to help hold people accountable to it. But man, when that, speaking of live ammo, when that grenade goes off and someone confesses sin, there are body parts everywhere. Nevertheless, that is the path of victory. And I think you'd agree with me that the church needs more, not less honesty. Less superficiality and playing of games and more real Christianity. That's where the freedom comes from. That's where the hope comes from. Man, if you're laboring under the burden of a besetting sin in your life, the best thing you can do for yourself and for this church is before you leave this building today, tell somebody. 
specifically, hey, I need to tell you what I'm struggling with. I need a minute. In fact, I love it when I see groups of two or three Christians with their arms around each other and heads bowed. It's clear that one person is being supported by another couple of people. And you're taking time on the Lord's Day to deal with sin. It's the best thing to do. One reason we will have the Lord's Supper every Sunday is because we expect you to be dealing with sin every single week. That's hope, isn't it? There's another couple of elements of hope here. So as to live for the rest of your time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Nothing is more hopeful than to know that you're living for God. Your life matters. You are doing things that will never lose their value. Wow. That's amazing. This is an investment that only gets pricier for time. There'll never be any dips in this stock market. That's reason for hope. There's there's an odd verse in our text that also actually gives reason for hope in verse 6. This is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is kind of a perplexing verse, and you know, the smart theologians love to debate this, but actually it's pretty simple. The gospel was preached even to those who have died. So they heard it when they were alive, because you can't preach to dead people. I don't know if you didn't realize that, but they're dead. So the people, when they were alive, heard the gospel, and what was the result? They were judged in the flesh. Their lives were transformed. They suffered for their faith. And according to human standards, maybe they were even martyred. Judged in the flesh the way people are, the the technical phrase is they, they were judged with the standards of man. So they didn't fit in. People were surprised. They reviled them. They blasphemed them. They even perhaps, not just soft persecution, but they, perhaps they even went to their death. But they heard the gospel. And so their, the, the death of their flesh did not kill them. But they now live in the spirit the way God does. I think that's what that means. This is a promise. This is a hopeful promise. We're to look at the martyrs and our mothers and fathers in the faith and see they lived for Christ, they suffered, they died, and now they're living like God does. And so you can have hope that what happened to them is happening to you. They're not dead. They're asleep. They're alive with Christ. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so we have hope. Well, I thought about how to end this sermon about time. What time is it? And, you know, psychologists study our perception of time. This has happened to me where I'm playing a video game and an hour will go by and I'm completely lost track of time. In fact, I've given up video games for this reason that I am extremely susceptible to this tendency to lose track of time when I'm playing them. By the way, I got rid of them on my phone. I just play them on my wife's phone, you see. So... I gotta, you got to keep an eye on me. What I'm hoping is that you'll lose track of time, at least track of the world's time, that you'll be in the Spirit in such a way under the Lordship of Christ, knowing that you're positionally free from sin and you're progressively growing in your freedom 
to walk with the Lord. That you'll be much less aware of the timelines of people around you. You're not worried about whether people think you're where you should be in your career or in your relationships or, or in your walk with the Lord. You just have your eyes on Him, losing track of time. Is that a good challenge to end with? That's what Sunday's for. Sunday's the day of eternity. One of my professors in seminary called it the market day of the soul. This is where we deal with God about the matters of our heart. I'm hoping that you can deal with God this morning and reflect on how your, how your internal clock is tracking with the time. And I want it to track with eternity. So let's synchronize our watches, shall we? All right, let's pray. Thank you, God, for your encouragement and challenge this morning to think about the way we're living in the world. And this passage has described the way some of us used to live. I know I can relate to this list of sins that are mentioned here by Peter. And some of us, Lord, continue to struggle to go back and dip into our old way of life. I know I do. Peter says, haven't we spent enough time doing that? Matching our steps, our march, or sinking our, our schedules to a pagan, godless lifestyle, one in which we're indulging in the flesh and ignoring God. Lord, we need your help here. We need you to remind us of those who have gone before and have been faithful in their testimony and in their witness. We need to remember that they lived and suffered and now are with you. And that's our destiny too as Christians. So help us. Help us to know Jesus with, the, with your mind, with the mind of Christ. Help us to know what time it is. We ask this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.